and welcome to The Rock Podcast. We begin a new study of the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark begins not with Jesus' birth, but picks up the story with John the Baptist, who is preaching the Gospel to prepare people for Jesus' ministry. Now let's join Pastor Ross with an overview of the book and the first eight verses. Are you ready to start a new book of study and perfect timing, the Gospel of Mark? We are headed to a gospel. I so miss Jesus in the sense of studying him and hearing his word and his teaching. Uh, We've been in the epistles so long now, uh, and it just perfect timing, wasn't it? Because we just finished Colossians and Philemon, which mentions the author of this gospel. John Mark is there, active in the first century church, and so that sort of led us to uh, where we are this morning. We're taking a look at the gospel of Mark, but not before we ask the Lord for his blessing. Heavenly Father, just what a a nice timing uh, of the week before Christmas to get started with the gospel that tells the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who came into the world to save us from our sins. We thank you for this new study. We commit it to you, Lord. Help us to uh, get all the truth that you have for us through your living, God-breathed word. Help us to apply these truths. And let your spirit do a deep and lasting change and uh, impact upon our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, Christmas is a story of redemption. And nobody knew uh, what that word meant like John Mark, the author of this gospel. And uh, so it's an amazing uh, timing. But uh, when you start a new book, it's always good to get a few things down. First of all, who's writing? Uh, Second of all, uh, what is the context of the book? How does it fit into the whole canon of scriptures, it's called? And then thirdly, a quick overview just to get our bearings. And so we'll start with who's writing. Well, we met John Mark because, as I said, he's mentioned at the end of Colossians and at the end of Philemon. Now, uh, he wasn't a disciple of Jesus. So a lot of people think he's one of the 12. He was not. Um, uh, he, he got his start later after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the Holy Spirit was given, and John Mark was probably at the upper room. He's 10 years younger than Jesus, so he's in his late teens when Jesus is ministering, but he's in the upper room because he that's his house. We find out through the scriptures that his mother Mary, not the Mary, uh, but she uh, was a wealthy gal, and she, he was a a young man of great privilege growing up in the house, the large house in Jerusalem where the church met. And they began meeting uh, in the upper room. And so he's heard Jesus, he knows about Jesus, but he's, he's in his teen years and he's formative. He comes into play, we find him in the book of Acts, chapter 12 and 13. He is a man of, of, of some privilege. He's met Jesus, he's hosted Jesus in his home. Right, and he has a cousin who's a mover and shaker in the in the book of Acts. His cousin's name is Barnabas, so he's privileged because he has a connection to a mighty man of God in the book of Acts. So mighty that he's Paul's best friend. Paul the apostle is going to partner with his cousin, John Mark's cousin Barnabas. And when it comes time in Acts thirteen to take the gospel to the then known world. He's going, Barnabas is going to say, bring my cousin John Mark along. He's a servant. He's going to be a helper. And uh, here's what happened. You, go, you know the story because we just covered it on the map. So Paul and Barnabas and cousin John Mark left from the sending church in Antioch. There's modern day Syria. 
and, and sailed off to Cyprus where great and dramatic ministry happened and had probably kind of freaked John Mark out. He's still a young man in his 20s and, and uh, there was an, uh, a sorcerer and, and Paul called down a, sort of a curse on the guy and he got blinded and, you know, John Mark is like, wow, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And then, you know, probably a rough trip here when he, this is Turkey, when they hit mainland Turkey, John Mark said, you know what, I'm not cut out for this. And the scriptures say in the harshest Greek possible, he deserted them. He disgraced himself. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, it's life and death stuff out there, especially 2,000 years ago. They're depending on him. And he went home to mom in the upper room in Jerusalem where all the Christians were gathered and all of that. And so, yeah. Paul and Barnabas then, two chapters later, want to go check on the, the churches. So Paul and Barnabas are back now after this was going and coming back, right? They're back and Paul uh, says to Barnabas, let's go and check on these guys. Let's, Barnabas says, let's take my cousin again. And Paul says, no, that's not smart. Why put us in harm's way again? No, 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 no. They had such a sharp disagreement that John Mark was the cause of the two greatest men of God in the Bible to split. Why? Over John Mark. John Mark's bad behavior. So John Mark, Paul says, Barnabas says, fine, be that way. I'll take my cousin. And, and Barnabas sails off, never to be heard of again. He sails off with his cousin, John Mark, to Cyprus. Now the second missionary journey, well, it's not recorded as the second missionary journey. What is recorded as the second missionary journey is Paul and Barnabas, go, uh, Paul taking Silas and going this way and checking on the churches. Now, what happens is that Peter, the apostle, one of the 12, who knows what it's like to have a moral compromise, a failure, a disgraceful moment. First Peter chapter 5, verse 13 says that Peter becomes his father in the faith. And Peter mentors John Mark and raises him up. And as Peter, scholars say, starts to pour out his heart and talk about the gospel and what happened, John Mark is writing it down from Peter's point of view. And, and, and Mark is Filled with Peterisms. Uh, you just, uh, sorry, I made that word up. <laughs> you figured that. Uh, just Aramaic, the language. He, and you, could, you just can hear him if you've got a trained ear to these kinds of things. And so the story of redemption told through somebody who knows what it's like to be redeemed. Now, that's John Mark. What a happy ending. And now the person, now the context. Why do we have four Gospels? I'm so glad you asked me that this morning. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to answer you. Because God in his wisdom said there's a lot more to know about my son than one version of him. So I'm going to paint a portrait with four different angles of the same person. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's kind of like, putting a gemstone up to the light and just kind of looking at the different facets. Now, what I want to show you, this is amazing, that there are four faces to Christ, his life and his work. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all take, they have specific themes that they emphasize, right? And so together you get the picture of Jesus. Now, what scholars have said throughout the centuries is that funny thing about those four themes, those four Gospels, seem to correlate to a four-faced creature in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 4, they're called cherubim. And they're described in the Bible as this mysterious being with four faces. Now, it's kind of freaky, and here's an artist's rendering of it. But what they say is, is that... This uh, vision or this creature that's in the very throne room of God really is speaking about the life, the person, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, how does that do? Where do you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, I'm going to show you. Matthew, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Matthew's writing to the Jews. He, he includes 96 references to the Old Testament in his gospel. He's telling the Jews, he's the king, he's the king, he's our king, O Jews, right? And, and who, the lion of the tribe of Judah is a title given in heaven. Revelation chapter 5 is where you get the lion of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah just means Jesus is from the relative family of one of the sons of, of Israel or Jacob named Judah. He comes from that line. And they call him the lion. There's the lion. Well, Mark, Mark is the oxen. And you can't see the oxen because he's not facing you. But you see his horns, okay? And, and so Mark's gospel is not talking so much to the Jews. There's not a lot of Jewish words in there. But he, he's talking to the Romans who had 60 million slaves, understand servitude. And he, he emphasized Jesus is the servant king. He's come like a, like a beast of burden to bear his, on his body the sins of the world who's led to the slaughter and slaughtered like an animal because it's serving God the Father's purpose in love that you and I would not perish but have everlasting life. And so Mark is the servant. Now, what, what thrills me is, is that the genius of God. John Mark, John Mark's going to emphasize the serving nature of our Lord. Who was John Mark? What did he do? John Mark's gifting and calling, he was a servant. That's what he was. So he's going to hear Peter's rendition. He's going to hear the serving, 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 because that's who he is. And we tend to hear things the way we're wired, you know? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, the man, the face of the man. Luke emphasizes the title of Jesus, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man, that he identified with us. Though he was God in a human body, he came from a womb of a human. He bled red blood. And, and so he emphasizes his compassion and his identity with the human struggle. Luke does the son of man, the face. But whoa, it doesn't stop with a man. Jesus is the son of God, the eagle that transcends and soars freely in the heavens. See, John has seven I am statements that only Jehovah makes. Jehovah's name means I am. And so John takes the seven I am's. I am the way, I am the door, I am the bread, I am the life, I am the gate, I am, I am, I am who I am, he says. The Jews want to kill him. They say, why are you trying to kill me? And they say, you're making yourself equal to God. They got it. So there he is, the king of Israel, the servant of all, who gives his life a ransom for everyone, a man born, a human being, God poured into an earth suit, one of us. When you see him, you can see an exalted human being. He was born of a human. He's 100% human. And then, catch this, 100% God conceived of the Holy Spirit. He didn't have an earthly father born of a virgin. Unto us a child is born, a child, a human child is born. Unto us a son, the son of God is given. Right there you see the dual nature of our Lord. And so now you've got the context of where Mark fits. Mark's going to teach you, he's a sermon. He's going to say stuff like, I'll wash dirty feet. How about you? I'm Lord. He says this. I'm Lord. You're right in calling me Lord. And I'll do the job nobody else wants to do. Get me a wash bucket. I'll wash your feet. And you? What's your attitude about doing lowly service? <laughs> you know, wow. If it's not beneath God to do those kinds of things and take that low road, that's what Mark it's going to inspire us to do. Take the low road and be blessed. Be like Jesus. That's where the blessing is. Now you know the writer. You know the context. What about the overview? Well, 
It divides quite nicely. First eight chapters, last eight chapters, a demonstration of his power, a demonstration of how he served us in love. But I'm going to let somebody else tell you the story. It's a video clip. It's five minutes long. Bible Project. They are so good. Theologically sound. They're wonderful. If you want an overview of any book in the Bible, they're not done yet. But if they've done it, you click on it, and under five minutes, you get the whole book of Jeremiah, you get Exodus, you get Genesis all laid out with diagrams, and it's fast-paced, interesting, and uh, really helps you, especially if you're a picture kind of person, you need to see charts and pictures and arrows. Uh, This one's a little bit different. Um, So I'm going to let it play for five minutes. It'll give you an overview of the book of Mark, and then we'll dive in and do verses one through eight. John the Baptist introducing Jesus. All right, here we go. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic King. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account, it's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic King and it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus's life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of Mark. 
But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross. No. So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there, instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid. And that's how the book ends. Which is a really abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? Okay, spoiler alert. Yes, he was. (laughs) And how do you know that? How do you know that? And somebody says, how do you know? How do you know? Let me tell you what I used to be, how I used to think, how I used to feel, what I used to do. I, I, I don't do those things anymore. Because I I met somebody. There was a substantive experiential change that took place. And that's really our testimony, is our greatest evidence that there's a living God. And his son's name, God the Son, Jesus. Let's take a look at how Mark opens the story. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, It is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Verse 6 says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Matthew adds, and with fire, you see. So having four gospels, you get the fuller picture when Mark is abbreviating. Mark's the number one word in Mark is immediately, 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 just showing the servant king immediately going here and doing this and serving here and taking care of business. And so We're going to take a look at uh, the text. It lays out quite nicely what you're looking at. Nothing uh, terribly creative, but pretty practical. The first three verses, note takers, is John's announcement, the announcement of the good news, the announcement. And then secondly, four through six will be the people's reaction. There's quite a stir over there. And then... uh, Thirdly, Jesus' purpose, the closing couple, verses 7 and 8. So announcement, reaction, and purpose of the Messiah. So let's isolate the beginning here and take a look at the announcement. You know, the beginning, here it is, the good news about Jesus Christ. So let's dive in. Christianity is good news. It may start with some offensive uh, realities about the weakness of man and the need to be saved. But ultimately, it's good news, and it's about a person. It's not about, you know, finding religion and changing your behavior, though maybe that's part of it there. But it's about meeting the person who uh, John tells us was with God in the beginning, creating the universe. Because without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. So it's meeting him, knowing him, experiencing the life that he meant for you when he created you and knit you together in your mother's womb. And so it's about good news. And so uh, it was about time for some good news. I'll tell you what, Israel was experiencing a famine 
of the word of God. 400 years since Malachi closed up, wrapped up things there in the Old Testament period. And interestingly, this very verse is echoed in Malachi in chapter 3 saying, the next voice you hear will be in the wilderness calling as a forerunner to Messiah. Now, that may explain why people were like, whoa, it's been 400 years, and now we hear a voice in the desert, just like Malachi said, the next thing you're going to hear is going to be the forerunner of Messiah. So that would get people's attention. Now, Israel really wasn't the only one who needed some good news. The whole world did. And and while God was preparing things in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. You know, men were busy building their ladders and trying to figure out how to get themselves out of their own predicaments. And so, you know, the Hindus began naming their 300 million gods and goddesses. And when you have 300 million of them, you got to start early. And so they, they did. And they began twisting themselves, you know, uh, put, pulling their legs around, wrapping it up in a bow for Christmas, I guess, and chanting and all of this stuff that people do to try to find nirvana or try to find heaven or try to find some peace. Uh, the The... The Roman world. While God is breaking in with some truth, the Roman world's making stuff up about myths and telling bedtime stories to their kids. Zeus is the king god, and from Zeus's forehead, all the other gods sprang out. That's not what you should be telling your kids at bedtime. That's a scary story. And those gods and goddesses of the Romans and the Greeks, they were filthy They were violent. They were detestable. They were immoral. And perhaps that explains why Rome was the way Rome was. It was a reflection of what they were taught, that their gods were. And so, yeah, we needed some good news, folks, and making stuff up about gods jumping out of uh, God's foreheads and sleeping around with the other god's wife and all of that. Terrible stuff. And then you have philosophers, the smartest guys on the planet. Hey, maybe you have a good word for us. And and instead, here's some of the most famous ones that you all know. Here's what they say. Matter does not exist. That's not very helpful. You're confusing us. We're just saying it's not really there. You think it's there. You know, they help us with questions like if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, does it really make a sound? Oh, that's helpful. And by the way, yeah, it makes a sound. Duh. And and so moving on. Rousseau, who who started, I have a bad attitude. I'm just going to admit it. I don't like lies and stupid stuff like that that get people into trouble. Rousseau, who started an enlightenment by saying this, humans are naturally good. It's society that corrupts them. Okay, let's, let's do the math here. Society is made up of naturally good humans. Then, how? Yeah, well, okay, there there was an enlightenment. So we needed some good news because people were spinning us around in circles saying, maybe this is all just a dream, you know? We needed some good news. Then you had the atheist that said, just eat, drink, Be happy you're around because tomorrow you die, so live it up. And they just write God out of the story. I would like a little bit uh, better news uh, than that. Better be good. You come back as a grasshopper, (laughs) and John the Baptist might get hungry (laughs) and eat you. Come on. What? Why bother getting out of bed? In the morning, if there's no God, there's no Savior, there's no rescue from my own sin and my guilt and my shame and my emptiness and my loneliness. If I have no friend in heaven, I no hope to go there, no eternal life, why bother? Then we should eat, drink, and be merry, live it up, because tomorrow you die. But that's not what the good news is about. The good news says, hey, let me tell you, I'm announcing some good news. Gospel just means good word about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so let's talk about that name. That name, Yeshua, 
It means God is salvation or the Lord saves. So God doesn't leave you wondering what Jesus was all about. I mean, name him Jesus, says the angel, to both of them in separate occasions, Mary and Joseph, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we know the wages of sin is death, and so how's he going to save us from our sins? So we start to get an idea of why he came. And he's going to tell us this. Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Jewish word for Messiah. And it just means chosen one. This is the way. It's a title. It's not Jesus' last name. We know that, right? So the Jesus, God saves. This is the one. This is the chosen way. This is the path. What does it say? There's no other ways. There's no other ways. His name means God saves through this one only. That's what his name means. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus, God saves. Christ, he's the one. And just so you know, he's the son of God, Mark says. Not a son of God. Oh, it's very different. We've been desensitized to it because we all think we're a son of God. We're a daughter of God. But God did this thing where he said he is the son of God. The son of God. Listen, I've got a scripture here. In his defense, he said, my father is always working. So the Jews were accusing him of breaking the Sabbath because they determined no working on Saturday. So... No working on Saturday meant no healing. Over here. <laughs> no healing on Saturday. So in his defense, they said, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath. Here's what Jesus says. My father's always working at his work to this very day, and I'm working. For this reason, they tried to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was, check this out, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. There it is perfectly. He's not a son of God. He's saying, I came from the heart. God, God beget me, begotten me. Be what, you know? God gave me life. And I come, <laughs> there's many ways around ob word obstacles in the morning, amen? <laughs> Not I am a son of God, he says. And listen to what he says. The Father is working, so am I. The Father's working, so am I. John 14, trust in God, trust in me too. He says, destroy this body, the Father will raise me up. Then he says, destroy this body, I'll raise it up. What? They don't just come out in John chapter 10, verse 30, say, I and the Father are one. What? He is the Son of God, the exact representation of his being, the radiance of God's glory, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Colossians 2, 9, he is the fullness of God in a human body. So he just wants you to know right off, the, the, this is an announcement, <laughs> Uh, that what God said beforehand, 700 years earlier, he brought to pass with this God is salvation. He's the one, he's the only way, and he is equal to God in every way. So now you have an announcement. I really like that. One writer said, said, said it, put it this way, the gospel's not a discussion or a debate. It's an announcement to be either received or rejected. And here's what, how he starts. He doesn't start in the manger because it started before the creation of the world, actually. But he'll go back 700 years and say, this wasn't a random birth. Jesus wasn't just a, an enlightened man who just came by happenstance. But there's some intentionality. There's predestination. There's God working, God knew this beforehand. And so John's uh, passage here, he takes from one of 350 prophecies that nail every detail of Jesus' life. 350 prophecies come into the world to say, hey, this is intentional. Jesus isn't going to be killed for his good work. It's his good work to be killed. 
He's leading the shots. He's calling the shots. He's saying, nobody takes the life of the Son of God. I lay it down willingly. I do it on my own accord. This is all him calling the Son of God, calling the shots. And so, heads up, prophecy so beautiful. How can, three, how can one man's life fulfill 350? I've got a chart here, and, and it's just got a chart of 20 of them. This is just 20 of documented prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled. And that's just 20. You've got hundreds more. How is that humanly possible? God says, I don't want this blind faith stuff. If, if somebody's going to rise up and say, put your trust in me and you'll live forever, I just want to back it up that you have something credible. You've got prophetic documentation, and then you've got the miracles. So I'm not asking you to believe in some random crazy man who says, hey, you'll live forever. I'm the light of the world. He says, God gave us a heads up through this man named John. Now, John was a messenger or a voice, as we go back to the scripture there. And he says there, right there, he says, I'll send my message, a messenger ahead of you to prepare the way. And he's called the forerunner. That word means literally to run before. So back in the day, and this is important to see what he's trying to say here. Back in the day, when a king wanted to go to one of his podunk towns out there somewhere, the roads weren't very good, and so he sent somebody, first of all, to say, hey, the king's coming, get ready. Two, how's he gonna, supposed to get to your town? So construction crews and the king's workmen, they came, and they leveled the place so that there could be a bulldozer sort of thing so that the king could get to where he needed to go. Now, that's where the scripture comes in. Uh, Isaiah continues in, in chapter 40. Mark's going to abbreviate everything, so get used to it. Now, Isaiah goes on to say, every valley will be filled in, every mountain and hill will be made low, the rough ground shall become level, and the rugged place, a smooth plain, crooked roads will become straight. That's what they did physically. Well, we're not talking physically here because when Jesus comes, he doesn't need a highway, a physical highway. So what is God saying? God is saying, there is something that John will do that will take the obstacle out from you and the king getting together. That's not so much to pave the way. John's ministry is not to pave the way for the Lord to come. He's paving the way for you to come to the Lord. And there's something about John's message that will take away the speed bump, the obstacle, and the hurdles of life so that you and the life giver, the servant king, who will take your sins to the cross and you will not perish so that you connect and not die the second death, but live forever with him. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, John is my bulldozer. And something he's going to do is going to take What's stopping you from coming to the king? He's going to level that. Let's see what that is. Next. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region, region and preaching a baptism slash in the Greek, baptism repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There it is. That's what's going to do it. The whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem kept going out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And by the way, here's what John wore and ate. And so we're already on the reaction here, the people's reaction. So, you know, pretty amazing. The, the Greek says, they, and everyone went to him, Jerusalem and Judea. Um, that's pretty amazing considering the person and the place and his message, that he could have hundreds of thousands of people. Josephus tells us how many people lived in Jerusalem at Jesus' time. Guess, take a guess, one million people. And this is practically everybody went, just about everybody made the trek. So I want to, I just ask myself, 
Why would you, back 2,000 years ago, when travel was hard, go into the middle of the dry, dusty, dangerous, barren wilderness, 20 miles, hard miles, 1,400-foot elevation, up and down. Why would you do that? Let me show you a couple pictures. You'll get to see it. Here's the road. The road. Nothing much changes when you got this to work with. All right. So this is still here. <laughs> All right. And you will drive down those roads if you come. Uh, this is where Jesus was tempted because he's going to go up from the baptism, from the setting. That's the next story. In the Judean wilderness, I got another shot here of an actual street that we drove down. This is a monastery where uh, the Catholics came in and said, we think this is where Jesus was tempted. So we're going to build a, a shrine to kind of keep the place. And so, yeah, Judean, why, why would hundreds of thousands go out to a place like that? We'll consider first the person, too. The person. You can put the text back on. Thank you. The person. He's kind of odd. He's not the kind of guy you invited to a wedding, you, you know, because he was, you know, his clothing and the kinds of way he's. Uh, listen, John was owned by no one. John was a free spirit. He said, I don't need the world. I don't want to be corrupted by the world. And went out, did his own thing. Uh, people who were very poor would clothe themselves with animal skins like a camel, you know, and, you know, he got creative. His protein source was locusts and grasshoppers, you know, and he used a little honey to help it go down easier. <laughs> he was an odd guy. The rumor was he was demon-possessed because he didn't like to eat a lot. He fasted a lot and, and spent his time in barren places. So you have to stop to think, why did they go out? Why would you go out to see somebody like that? It certainly wasn't because it was a fashion statement. Amen? <laughs> All right. Why would you go out with sidewinders and blistering heat? You can't even stop for a Slurpee. I mean, what, you, you, why would you do that? Listen to the genius of God he's going to. Announce the living water in the middle of a dry, barren wasteland where it's parched, everything's dreary. There's nothing there but snakes and scorpions and emptiness, and nothing grows. There's no life. And so not only the genius and majesty and brilliance and creative art, artistry of the Lord is to announce the one, but where are they going to see Jesus, for the first time, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Next passage. He's going to come up out of these waters of baptism, and he's going to say things like, whoever believes in me from their inmost being will flow rivers of living water. And where? You're going to have to come to your desert place. That's where we find him. We find him where there's nothing left but sand and a feeling. Yeah, you guys, come on. Give a guy a break. I know that was weird, but, you know, parched, parched, dry, nothing. That's where we find him. That's where we find him. When my father was jumping up and down in a, in a garbage bin, trying to push the garbage down, he had an epiphany, 55 years old Jewish guy from Brooklyn. There must be something more than this. And he started to call on the name of the Lord. But he had to be in the wasteland. I myself, I wasn't in a wasteland. I was 19 years old and living it up. I had friends and parties. I was a party animal. And there was laughing, and I was the class clown, and hard to believe. <laughs> I was the kind of fun guy to have around and tell some jokes, right? But I was lonely, lonely and empty. There were scorpions scurrying around, and not much, and you could just hear the thud of nothing, nothing. All the laughing, all the partying. I remember telling a friend of mine, he says to me, he says, this is the life. He said, Dad, man, we're having a good time. 
And I'll never forget it. I just got goosebumps remembering it. I say, yes, it's a lot of fun. But the only thing about it is that it's against what God wants us to be doing. I remember he said, where'd that come from? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I'm looking around. What is that? Well, it's the ministry of John the Baptist called the Holy Spirit who comes alongside to convince you that you really are dying of thirst because we think we're happy. And sometimes God has to point out, is this working for you? And that's what John the Baptist's ministry is all about. And so John came baptizing, and here's here's the answer, folks. Here's the answer. In our barren, dry, terrible place, it was truth that brought them out. A regular guy, not much to look at, kind of a little bit odd, but he spoke truth. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they were the guys in charge of Israel's religion. They had turned it into a burdensome nightmare. Jesus was fiery mad at them. And he denounced them seven woes in Matthew 23 and said, you have turned relationship with God into a nightmare and called them a bunch of serpents. John came, he's going to tell you the truth. And they had been wanting to hear truth, just tell me the truth, even if it hurt. And it did hurt a little bit because he used the R word, repent. So here is the tool, the bulldozer, that will take the mountain out of the way of you and God, you and the king. It'll fill in the deep parts where there's sin and confusion and unbelief. It'll fill that all in. And the word is, here it is, repent. And it means to change your mind. Two Greek words that mean mind change. Do a U-turn. So he's saying, the way to prepare to meet God, you're going to have to get to your desert place and say, I'm out of me. I'm out of resources. I can't make this work anymore. Time to turn around and do things your way. What is sin? Sin is a love of self at the expense of God and everybody else. It's time to turn, to change, to obey, to humble myself. I don't have all the answers. I need help. You know, I could do everything. So you thought, how are you going to get yourself out of the grave? How are you going to pull that one off? It's when we start to change and turn and look to him. He says, that'll take the speed bump out. That'll fill in your valley. You've got a big boulder in the way of you and eternal life. You and eternal life. Think about it. It's not just finding a religious figure. It's finding the cord to life and to safety from what's behind you. And what's behind you is eternity without Christ. The eternity. I can't imagine 10 seconds in the place that Jesus describes. Jesus. 30 times talks about this place that would give you a nightmare if I just have to mention it. And he says, you know what will take the, the thing that's stopping you from getting to him and connecting and having life is a simple word called change your heart, change your mind. That's it. And that's what will bring you together. And he says, don't stop there. Now, I want you to, to think Repentance is important. It's the first word of the announcement. Listen. It's the only way anyone will ever get saved. And it's Jesus' first words. Repent for the kingdom of God is close to you. Repent. Change your mind. Change your behavior. The ministry of John the Baptist is to make you thirsty, soften your heart, convict you of your sins, confessing their sins. Guilty. Guilty is charged. Guilty is charged. That's all. That's all it took. The Holy Spirit is the John the Baptist who cries out to the human soul, 
who convicts them of their sin. John 16, Jesus said, John, uh, he says, the Holy Spirit will be sent. The Holy Spirit will convict the world. That means every one of us of your own sin, your righteousness, need to get right with God and of judgment. That's a quote of the judgment to come. So we are not Old Testament prophets. John is an Old Testament prophet. He's the end of the Old Testament. He is an Old Testament prophet, Jesus says. John is the greatest prophet that ever lived. Why? Because all the other prophets were pointing, pointing, pointing. John's pointing, and guess what? I'm right here, touching him. He's the greatest. He's right there announcing my appearing, right? But he said, he goes on to say, the least Christian is greater than him. Why? Because we've got Jesus closer than John had him. We've got Jesus knit into the fabric of our soul if you've cried out for salvation in Christ. I don't need to be John the Baptist this Christmas at the dinner table. I really don't. You may say things that help bring repentance, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to thunder. I mean, once in a while, you may have to thunder, but not as a characteristic of your life. Jesus did not raise his voice in the streets. He had some tough things to say when he needed to say tough things, but he usually said the tough things to the religious people, not to people who were just at Thanksgiving table, just, just trying to make a living, you know, and trying to get through life. The New Testament Christian is kind and gracious. Find the balance where you don't throw out the repentance. You have to repent of sin. And nobody wants to hear that. The new gospel is this. There are no boundaries, no need to repent. God is so big and so kind and so loving that every, chill out, you evangelical Christians. God's cool with everybody the way they are. No need to change. Repent, repent. No need to repent. Just let everybody in and just keep it the way it is. God's cool. Love wins out at the end. We're all going to be happy. Join hands and sing Kumbaya. Right? It's okay to smile in church. Newsflash. <laughs> or laugh. Or say amen. amen. I'm begging for some kind of affirmation. <laughs> Do you want me to get down on my knees? <laughs> no, no, just say an amen. That's enough. Let's finish up. Here's his message. Oh, I love this. Well, his re message was repent, confess your sins, get ready, but meet the person. <laughs> meet the person, I beg you. After me will come one more powerful than I. I can't even untie his shoelaces, please. I baptize you with water, but the one that's coming, he's going to connect you with power. He's going to dunk you into electricity. Now, that word Holy Spirit and fire, Matthew, as I told you, adds. And so now we wrap up by thinking this is just beautiful. Here's what he's saying. John the Baptist, this is a big deal to make a pilgrimage out there, okay? John the Baptist is a big deal. Dude, he's a stand-up guy. Everybody loved him. I mean, if you were to say something bad about John the Baptist, the Pharisees said, when Jesus said, hey, what's up with John the Baptist? Was he telling the truth or not, right? And the Pharisees scurried over and they talked to each other and they said, hey, if we say, yeah, he was right on, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if, but if we say, no, he was a crazy man, he was demon possessed, the crowd will kill us because they know John was a prophet. So John's a big deal. When the Pharisees come out there, they say, um, are you the Christ? That's how good he was. When you heard John, you said, are you the son of God? And he says, he, he saw that. And he said, oh, oh, don't stop at the thrills and the thunder and the gifting and the calling and the fact that I'm a 700-year-old uh, fulfillment of a promise right here. Oh, don't stop there. Go to the 
power, the one who has mighty power, all right? Not me. I can do, I can stir you up. I can help you feel thirsty. I can get your emotions going. I can point you in the right direction. But only he can save your soul. Only he can make changes. Only he's got the power to stop the hemorrhaging of the woman, to still the storms of life, to open blind eyes, to make paralyzed parts of us that don't work anymore work. He's got the power. And when there's a legion of demons wanting to do you harm, he's got the power with one word. Don't stop at the saying, oh, John, we went out to see John. Man, to hear John preach just felt like he was talking just to me. Who cares, John would say, if you stop there and don't connect with the object of John's gospel? It's every pastor's nightmare to think that people are all enthralled with the ministry or the preacher or the pastors and miss out that taking that next step to to connect with Christ and to put into practice the thing the poor guy is trying to get across. And all they left was, wow, I was thrilled. Wow, I laughed. Wow, isn't that funny or amazing or whatever? That's fine. Just go all the way. Go all the way to the one and connect just like that woman who Mark's going to tell you about. She's hemorrhaging. She has internal bleeding. And she just doesn't want to talk to anybody about it. And she sneaks up behind. And she's saying to herself, if I just touch even the hem of his robe, I'll be healed. And so she manages to get up there. She touches the robe and power. And you know the story. I love telling it. Jesus stops and the parade backs up. And, you know, everybody's pressing in. He says, who touched me? And Peter says, Lord, (laughs) how can you ask us that? Because everybody in the crowd is touching you. They're going to crush you to death. But you're saying, who touched me. And Jesus is saying, I'm trying to make a point, Peter. No, they're close. They're shouting one thing and then another, and they're touching me. But only one person had the faith in me to connect in a practical way and reached out and, and quoting Jesus in Mark, power came out of me and went into her. I felt power go out of me. Jesus says, go to the mighty one. Power to fix your marriage. Power to help you through a bad one. Power to restore you after. Your sons, your daughters are in trouble. Go to the one. Go to the one who has power to make a difference. The fervent prayer of one set right with God is effective and powerful. James chapter 5. Make sure you're not one in the crowd. Dear God in heaven, Please, do not wind up in heaven close in the crowd. You were there. You were shoulder to shoulder with everybody else, but you didn't get the exchange, that power that saves you. You got a lot of other stuff. You popped up to life. The sower sowed the seed, and up you came, and the tears and all the professions and everything, but the sun came out, and you weren't even, you didn't get the real deal. That's John's heart there. Get the real deal. Get past all the emotion and connect and give your praise not to, whoa, look at John. He says, you know what? And I'll tell you this. In that society, the one thing a slave did not have to obey, only one thing. You do not have to take the master's shoes off. That's just even beneath a slave's dignity, right? So John is saying, I don't even qualify to do what a slave wouldn't have to do. Well, I heard, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Should I? Yeah, I'm going to. (laughs) You seem like, you know, why, why do I have to lose with this crowd, honestly, today? I heard one preacher say, I feel like I'm a flea on the backside of an elephant. He says, I am just a nobody. I'm a voice. I call out. 
I didn't invent any of it. I just stand up and talk. I'm so unworthy, just like a flea. And then I said to him, you think that's bad? On the flea, on the flea. On the <laughs> <laughs> that's a good place to be. He says, listen, look, your adoration, your praise, because I must decrease. As his disciples came after Jesus was baptized and all of this, we'll get into it. And his disciples come and say, hey, nobody's coming out anymore. They're all going to him. And he said, exactly. The disciples are like, hey, you're losing everything for him. Yeah, I must decrease. He must increase. And that has to be the story of every Christian. So here we go. The beginning of the good news that God is saving through Jesus Christ, who is God in a body, who is the servant of all, who says, I'll wash your feet. What needs to be done? I'm God, but that's not beneath me. And you're my follower. How about you? What's your attitude about serving? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are challenged, and we thank you for this overview and study of the book of the beginning of the gospel according to Mark. And we pray, Father, that you bless us and help us put these truths into practice and be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.